Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started back in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an astrophysicist and the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York, and the spiritual heir to Carl, ha uh, spiritual heir to Carl Sagan in getting us all worked up about the cosmos. He's been appointed to special NASA commissions, hosted multiple TV specials and podcasts, and written many excellent books, the latest of which is Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. It's a succinct, wryly funny book that's surprisingly informative for its size. It has the informational density of a black hole. Welcome to Think Again, Neil. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks <laughs> and, for having me And I'm me not back. saying your book is dense. I'm not, you know, I'm not <laughs> That's saying... That's fine. Or that light can... I can take it. I can take it. <laughs> or, or that light can escape it, because uh -huh. lots of light escaped it into my brain. Um, yeah, the book just comes right out. You know, the first chapter is called In the Beginning. Of course, that's where you would begin something. Yeah. In the beginning. But I don't, I don't pull any punches. I mean, the uh, people have joked. They said, oh, astrophysics for people in a hurry? Did you call it that because Astrophysics for Dummies was taken? Right. Uh, and I say, um, first, yes, that title was taken. But, <laughs> but, uh, but no, there's nothing sort of dumbed down in the book. It's, it's mm -hmm. real astrophysics. But it's, for me, if I'm reading something difficult, right. I like knowing that it's not very long. Yes. So that you can summon energy to move through it. And so this, it's, a very, it's a slender volume. And for me, that should give the reader the confidence they would, that they would get through it. I, you know, I read every book for this show, and I always take notes on them. Um, and I read your book quite quickly uh, because, indeed, it is slender. But I ended up with like five times as many notes oh, as I typically have, <laughs> literally. Like so, so it obviously is dense. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you first of all. I want to start with like. You've said many times, I think, that your hero, that Carl Sagan is a major hero of yours. Um, well, I, so no, I don't, I don't do hero worship. What I do is I will say that he carved a path that okay. no one had carved before. And it wasn't a path. He carved a, a meadow, all right? He, okay. opened up a, 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 he, he opened up a region of space gotcha. that I currently am in, as are many other people who right. are bringing science down to earth. The universe down to Earth, in particular. So, in that regard, uh, I think we all owe him a great debt. I was interested in the universe long before I even knew he existed. So, okay. in that sense, he's not sort of the hero, the guiding I light, be just or, like you. Right. I, it wasn't quite that, but I can objectively assess what his his importance in this world when he was around and even today. Yeah, well, I mean, I was a little kid when, you know, I think I was given the book Cosmos, and I, I remember mm -hmm. I remember poring over those pictures. I mean, it was, the writing was too advanced for me. I, you know, I was maybe 10 or something mm -hmm. or 9, but, but I, I guess I wanted to ask you sort of how... Well, just to be clear, the first release of the book was a larger format. Yeah, that, that's that, that what I had. was fully illustrated. Yeah. Then it was, became so popular that publishers removed all the pictures and made a mass market paperback out of it. Okay. Which had no pictures. Right. <laughs> right. Explore right. the wonder of the cosmos through <laughs> these, yeah, without all of the gigantic beautiful photos. Right. I mean, I wanted to ask you a little bit what you, you know, what your assessment is of how the role of the science explainer 
may have changed from Carl Sagan's time to now? Like, what do you have to do that is different from... Uh, the role, I think, has been exactly the same. There are people who don't know about science and want to know. There are people who don't know about science and don't know that they should know. <laughs> right. And then there are people who don't know about science and don't want to know. Right. And these, are, these pose three distinct challenges to the science communicator, the science educator. And I think those challenges have been the same forever. The urgency may have been different mm. from one year to another, mm -hmm. depending on what's going on in the executive branch and Congress or in the school system. So, so the, the urgency is different, but the motivation and the goals are all the same. It hasn't, like the, it hasn't become more of a political minefield now, what with the sort of religious polarization and everything else than, and, and say, climate change well, and whatever okay, just to it be once clear. was? Or sure, just to be clear, there's a long history of conflict between science and religion. Sure. And, you know, just remember the Scopes trial. Well, I think it was the 1920s. What right, was. right, yeah. right. Evolution. Yeah, yeah, evolution getting taught in the schools. And that... That was headline news, right? And right. so, right, so right, right. it's not a new thing that right. you have people wanting to teach biblical creation in their science classroom in lieu of whatever else biology is telling us. So I can't tell you that that's a new phenomenon. It's, it's not. The denial of objectively true results from science by members of Congress and others right. in ways that affect legislation that affect us all, that I don't know precedent for that. Mm -hmm. uh, the point about teaching evolution or not in schools, that's a local, legally that's a local problem. Right. Because the Constitution makes no mention of education, and the Constitution also says if we don't make mention of it, it's a state problem. Right. Right. So, so those are state-by-state state issues, what shows up in the curriculum. But if you rise up beyond your state and then try to influence the nation yeah. with what might otherwise be your political philosophy, religious philosophy, cultural philosophy, and you, to do so, have to stand in denial of science, then you are bringing denial of science into legislation that then has to affect us all. And that is the beginning of the end of an informed democracy. I thought it might be fun to try this, uh, and maybe the answer is read my book, but like... <laughs> I'd how, be delighted to give you that answer. <laughs> how quickly can you tell the history of the universe, like from, you know, Big Bang to, say, planets? Uh, probably in three minutes. <laughs> okay, which, uh, okay, so, but I was one, you know, I was kind of hoping for a, like, okay, we got to be like Big Bang to... Blah, 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 we, oh, you want it shorter than three yeah, minutes? Yeah, yeah. Can you give it to me in... Thir I don't know, 30 seconds? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, you ready? Yeah, go for it. About 14 billion years ago, the universe was a seething hot cauldron of matter and energy that burst forth. And while the universe expanded, it cooled. And out of this cooling universe were formed the basic particles of nature. And from that was formed atoms. And from those atoms, base atoms, that would be absorbed into newly formed stars, heavier elements would get made, and these stars would then explode, scatter these heavy elements across the freshly formed galaxies. You do this multiple generations in sequence, and you get the next generation of stars that has enough heavy elements to make planets. And some of those elements are organic, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, enabling some planets to make life, 
enabling at least one of those planets we call Earth to make humans. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Neil. How long did that take? Um, I, I think it was about 30 seconds. Yeah, I wasn't okay, actually yeah. counting, but... Um, feel it. Yeah, I'll check mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah, and, the and read the book. <laughs> and, re and go the read the chapter in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, by well, the way, and, just to make it clear, yeah, yeah. The book is not just simply a, a retelling of right. the universe. Right. It's, it's a curated arc of content that, in my judgment, is the most mind-blowing things I can share with you. And I don't want to. I don't want my mind blown alone. I want to share. I want to share that experience with people. And it also attempts to bring under one umbrella what might have been the fragmented things you've heard about or seen in news headlines or right. the channel surf past a documentary and you heard the word exoplanet you heard the term dark matter dark you've heard the term the phrase colliding black holes you've heard multiverse you've heard these terms this book attempts to gather them in such a way that by the time you're done you are fluent in all these topics. So the next morning at the water cooler, you got something to talk about. <laughs> right, right, right. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can claim fluency uh, in astrophysics as a result of the book, but it, but, but it certainly introduced me to a lot of concepts that I, I did not understand before. And I want to dig a little deeper into that. Um, one is. In the in the early early po cooling point of the universe, this there's this like Planck era, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that is very 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 brief, yes. right? And you start you talk about basically particles of uh, matter and antimatter coming into existence, and the fact that they like come into existence, they wink out of, they annihilate each other, they, and and this is happening over and over and over. But the reason that we have stuff instead of not stuff is because at some point this becomes asymmetrical. Can we dig a little bit into that? Like, how does it... No, not really. It just is. <laughs> oh, we don't well, know. So, so, you're right. When you have a photon, which is the carrier particle of light energy, okay, you have a photon, if your soup is hot enough, and if the photon energy is high enough, right. which it gets from the soup, it will spontaneously become particles. Right. Matter-antimatter pair. And then those matter-antimatter pairs reconnect, and they completely annihilate. Right. There's no matter left. And then it becomes a photon again. And this is governed by E equals MC yes, squared. Yes, entirely. The energy becomes matter, street. matter goes to It's energy. a two-way street. Yeah. It's happening continually and consistently. Right. And as we cool, you reach a point where the photon can no longer make matter-antimatter particle pairs. Right. It doesn't have enough energy to do that. So you start freezing out of the expanding universe certain properties that in a hotter day would have fluidly moved from one form to another. Okay. All right. So now the universe cools. No longer can you make particles out of photons. Any matter-antimatter-particle pairs that had been made right. will find one another and annihilate. Right. They'll make a photon that cools and we'll never be able to do that again. Now, right. one in a hundred million of these photons becoming matter-antimatter particle pairs. One in a hundred million makes only a particle without the antiparticle. Yeah, why? We, we have no idea. Why. Just happened. It, it just, we don't know what <laughs> caused it, right. but we know that it happened. And so now, if it's only one in a hundred million, then... All the ones that could pair up and become photons, they do. It's like a, a, you know, a dance corral, right? 
Right. You start pairing off, right. and there's one for everybody until there's there isn't. some left. Yeah. The, wall, the wallflowers. Well, the, yeah, the little wallflowers. <laughs> and there's one wallflower left, right? <laughs> that one person on the wall has no dance partner. Right. And that's what happened in the early universe. So one out of 100 million photons is a matter particle, and that is us. And then those... Had that... that had, it's yeah, called symmetry breaking. Right. Had that symmetry not broken, right. this universe would just be filled with photons and nothing else. I mean, is, is the question of why symmetry was broken a subject of active investigation in astrophysics, or, uh, yes. or is it uninvestigatable? No, 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 no. <laughs> so there are episodes in the early universe right. that we assign the time and place for when these break symmetry breakings occur. Okay. And uh, they're called phase transitions in the early universe. Right. And, and that's a, it's a term that doesn't need to be that mysterious because we experience phase transitions all the time. Think about it. Let's say you grew up in the tropics. Okay. And you live a kind of primitive life and you lived in a you know, thatched hut. And someone shows you a cup of water. Okay. See, I know what that is. That's water. Right. Can I drink some? Sure. But watch, and then I drop the temperature of the water until it freezes, you will completely freak out. <laughs> because this substance you would normally drink is now solid. Right. This would look like magic to you. This is like, what did you do to my water? <laughs> oh my gosh, now I will never have water. You just think about watching that for the very first time in your life. Right. That is a phase transition from liquid to solid. Gotcha. And you can phase transition up to on the other side. You can go from s liquid to gas, okay. water becoming steam. Right. So phase transition means everything that's going on completely reorganizes into something else. Right. The early universe, there are periods where forces previously manifesting under one umbrella would split. And we are assigning these weird things right. to happen at these occasions where the forces split. First one is because there's not or, uh, because there's sorry. not otherwise a sensible place to do that. Okay, a split is what we're calling a phase transition in this context. So, so gravity. So if we first would be electromagnetism. If, right? if we assume yeah. that all forces were one at some point in the early universe, okay. then yes, gravity would have been the first to split. Okay, prevailing philosophical bias tells us that early enough in the universe, there was only one force. Right one coherent force. And then as the universe expanded and cooled, this force splits. And that would be a phase transition. So gravity splits off first. Okay. Now we have this other force that contains forces that would still later split. So what happens mm -hmm. next? The strong nuclear force splits away. And now we have the what we call the electroweak force. Okay. that remains. And then electromagnetism splits from the weak nuclear force. Okay. That gives us the four familiar forces we have today. Gravity, the strong force, electromagnetism, and the weak force. I see. So, and all that happens quickly in the early universe. I would have assumed that the first one would be electromagnetism because I would have thought it's like light would be the first you know, light, light being light, electromagnetism. Light communicates electromagnetism, right. the, for, the electromagnetic force, but nothing is sticking together electromagnetically at the time. It's not, right. uh, electromagnetics is 
this is what's holding your atom together and your molecules. And there are no atoms. There are no molecules. Gotcha. So there's a whole other regime okay. of matter and energy. Yeah. Okay. So I, the other thing that I, I simply do not understand, and I wonder, like... Whether... Read the book. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. We can shorten this interview, you know. Yeah, yeah, By yeah. the way, I, I t only half joke with people by telling them, I write books so that I never have to speak on that subject again. <laughs> well, I mean, you did, you did write clearly on this subject, and maybe I'm just a little extra dense on it, but I, I wanted to ask about this thing where nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And mm -hmm. I want to ask in this context, you talk, this was really, really interesting in your book. You talk about how you know, the universe is expanding and that at the fringes, the, it's accelerating. The, it, it accelerates at the fringes. And so galaxies, and at a certain point, galaxies, from our perspective, are going the speed of light, I guess. And then, uh, and then they disappear, so we can't see them anymore. And then I think you say that some of them are going faster than the speed of light, and yes. that that's not a problem. Not a problem. Under Einstein. Okay. Not a problem. Please, why? I don't get it. Get over it. <laughs> no, no. We, we don't, we, we'd need seven hours to <laughs> no, really no, no, make no, no, sense no, no, of no, no, this? No, 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 it's, right. Right. it's actually easy. Okay. Um, so in 1905, Einstein advances what today we call the special theory of relativity. Although right. that was not the name of his paper. The name of his research paper was on the electrodynamics of moving bodies. Okay. Today, that's just we just call it his special th theory of relativity. And in it, he describes phenomenon wholly unfamiliar to our senses and to our then experimental apparatus. Uh, he describes what happens to time and, and mass and length and, and there are odd things that happen when you are in motion. Okay. But what he did not address, what happens is if you accelerate. And that was harder. It would take him 10 more years to address accelerated motion instead of just straight, constant speed motion. So 1916, he publishes what is the general theory of relativity, which accounts for all motion. But now, in special theory of relativity, you cannot go faster than light. Right. I should say that differently. You cannot accelerate past the speed of light. You can imagine things that only ever exist faster than light, and we did. We call them tachyons. Mm. And they actually move backwards through time. Okay. An interesting hypothetical particle. But no, you cannot have something going less than the speed of light and send it to go faster than the speed of light. Gotcha. All right. General theory of relativity says, all right, I can now explain to you the fabric of the universe. And in the expanding universe, it's not galaxies moving through space. It is the very fabric of space that fabric in which these galaxies are embedded is what's stretching. Okay. If you stretch space, nothing is moving through space at any given speed. It is space itself that's expanding Got it. at any given speed. And you can expand space faster than the speed of light till the cows come home. Why? That's still an expression. <laughs> the cows come the home. Yeah, I don't know. But, but uh, I grew up in the city. I have no right to use that, that phrase. I think, I think people say it still. Uh, me too. And yep. I, yeah, but, because but, the, the special relativity rule refers to moving through space. Oh, I see. So space itself can do whatever it wants. Whatever. It can twist. It can bend. It can stretch. It can stretch faster than light. Huh. And that's what happened in the early universe. There was a period where we expanded faster than light. Oh, that, okay, that's really interesting. Okay, yeah. so so that's why it's not a big, it's not a, it's, it's not, not a problem. A right. Okay. All right. Got it. But well, you, that, you you're good to trip on that because we've had it, I don't know, beaten into us that nothing can go faster than light. Blah 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 blah. So, 
Yeah, well, it's a little hard to wrap your mind around the very fabric of the universe expanding. You know, that's that's a little tricky. As yeah, well. that's why we like, have math. What, what even is that? That's you know, that's that's the that's, that's the dark matter, the energy, the. the that's whole. why we have math because <laughs> our brains, you know, evolved to know to not get eaten in the plains of Africa. Right. Really good to check if there's a lion in the brush, a tiger in the brush. A bear in the brush, lions and tigers and bears, <laughs> but it's not equipped for thinking about the expanding space-time continuum. So the math enables us to represent what's going on, and then when you and math is very logically constructed, so that when you manipulate the math, it's tantamount to manipulating your understanding of the universe, I see. but in a in a way that uh, you don't end up drifting away, making stuff up. Right. The math contains your explorations. I think that is a, uh, the perfect space-time moment for us to transition to the second half of the show, which mm -hmm. is where we look at some surprise clips that my video, the uh, video team has dug up from the archives okay. and talk mm -hmm. about them. All right. So let's see what we got first. This one is Dean Bonomano, neuroscientist, talking about time. So there's two general hypotheses or theories about the nature of time. One of them we'll call um, presentism. And presentism, presentism, the notion is, is that only the present is real. The past was real. Uh, the future, some configuration of the future universe will be real. But for now, only the present is real. In contrast, the opposing view is called eternalism. Eternalism, you have the past, present, and future are all equally real. So that makes the present just an arbitrary point in time, or an arbitrary moment in time. So under that view, there are other moments, or there's a continuum of moments in time that are essentially already laid out within the universe. And that universe in physics is called the block universe. So under the block universe, it makes sense to engage in a conversation about time travel because there's other moments um, to go to. Now under presentism, we can pretty much take the possibility of time travel off the table because there's no other moments to go to. Only the present is real. So it doesn't make sense to ask if you can travel to moments in time in the past or future that don't exist. So we have to decide if we want to take our subjective sense of the flow of time as an objective fact about the universe. Um, that must be explained by physics. Or in contrast, is our subjective sense of the flow of time merely an illusion, an illusion in the deepest sense of that word because we're perceiving something that doesn't exist in the physical world that physics doesn't need to explain because it doesn't exist and thus neuroscience needs to address where this illusion comes from. And this illusion is presumably tightly coupled with the problem of consciousness. As an astrophysicist, are you an orthodox eternalist or whatever that the, other, the second thing is as opposed to a presentist? The only ist I am is a scientist. <laughs> okay. All right. The moment you start labeling someone's philosophical belief system with ists, I... Things get dangerous. Yeah, no, I just, uh, I don't, I try not to engage in those kinds of conversations. Uh, as a scientist, which is the only ist I am, you you do what works, right? And you don't you don't spend time arguing or debating what 
someone wants to call what it is you're doing. Oh, sure. Okay. okay? Yeah, yeah, so, I get that. yeah, So I can go into the future. I can do that. Yes. And special relativity empowers me to do so. But I don't go into my own future. I go into your future in that sense. So mm. uh, I can enter a different gravitational zone or speed through space in such a way that I age one year and you age 10 years. Right. So I will show up in your future not having aged as much as you have. So in other words, we experience different timelines from one another right. under those conditions. Right. That's just, that's an experimentally verified fact. So, and I can, I can give you an example of how that gets verified sure. if you want. Sure, Because it clearly wasn't verified by <laughs> me coming back 10 years into, the, into your future. We, haven't, <laughs> we have not done that yet, but we right. have other ways to, to demonstrate this. So to assign a time label for somebody, what kind of a timist are you? <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going to. I guess I'm. I, when you are a scientist, you don't label your thoughts. Sure, You just sure. explore what is and what is not true. And if you say you're this, that means your whole philosophy pivots on that being true. And, and I don't care what a philosopher says about what is true. I care about what an experiment says about what is true, no matter what that answer is. Right. And if I go in with an assumption about it, right. the only result that can come out of that is that I'm biased sure. in terms of how I design or interpret the experiment. In Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, right. Uh, there is time travel in there, which comes about, enabled by these aliens that collect the main character. Was it Billy Pilgrim? I think it was his name. Anyhow, I think so. they, uh, aliens collect him from his backyard and bring him to their world, and they are not limited in time. Right. So neither is he now. So he's sitting there in a cage, because he's a zoo animal for these aliens, but he can just close his eyes and reoccupy any point in his timeline. Okay. So he had to learn how to think about that fact by saying that nothing happens before or during or after anything else. It's always happening. Okay. You're always being born. You're always dying. You're always uh, going to college. You're always making love. And it's just a matter of what part of your timeline you rejoin at any given moment. So I guess that comes close to yeah. what you call a box, whatever. The, uh, I yeah, I, there's a term Three for it. Three four-dimensional box. Yeah, simple. Yeah, whatever. time is a fourth dimension, like at, with access, free access, forward and back. The way we have access in any of our other three dimensions. I'm sitting across from you. I could walk towards you, and I can walk away from you. Right. I can walk to your left, to your right. I can rise, and I can fall. Time, we are, seem to be prisoners of the present, but if you break that open. Now I can go closer to you in the past or closer to you in the future with right. time as the variable rather than as distance or height, width, and depth. So I'm happy to talk about that, sure. but I'm not going to constrict my thinking by labeling it and saying this is how I am going. I just, I can't. As, do a, people as, do? as a scientist, yep. as a scientist, do, does the experimental evidence available to you, as well as the math, suggest one way or the other no. whether it is likely to be able to travel, whether the past exists in somewhere that when that you can go, someone might theoretically be able to go to? If you can travel faster than light, all laws of physics tell us that you can go backwards in time. Okay. So that's why to hear this discussion, I don't 
<laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I just I you it, you recoiled. You didn't like the categories that he was. Yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah, anti-category yeah. in general. Yeah, so yeah, I don't yeah, want. Yeah, that's yeah. not a personal yeah, indictment yeah, 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 of yeah, yeah. the discussion. Um, the truth is measured by experiment, not by how deeply you thought about something. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> in your armchair, right? Right. You can think deeply about the experiment. Okay. Right. But if you sit there and say the world is either this or that, no. History, it, there are trash bins filled with people saying the world must be this or that. And then experiment proceeds and you find out both were wrong. There's right. some third other reality that the experiment revealed to the thinker. And I know you call big think, so you should have all your deep thinkers on the show. I got no problems with that. <laughs> but um, ultimately it's the big experiment that finds the truth. Right. And you were saying, you say in the book, which I found interesting, so like dark matter, it, it's not out of the ballpark to say, oh, wait a minute, isn't that like the ether that scientists had once proposed as the medium for light to travel through? But that's not the case. It's you not. said there's a, re there's a, I mean, that that's, that's a reasonable it's, placeholder until we know exactly not, what it is. To right? analogize dark matter and the ether is to not understand either. Right, okay. Okay? They're, they have n nothing whatever to do with one another philosophically or experimentally right. or scientifically. So the ether into which huge investments of intellectual capital was placed. And probably real capital. And, and, well, <laughs> or well, whatever, the other, the other kind yeah. of capital. Back then we were not yet into <laughs> big government experiments. That was not expensive experimentation. It was still tabletop. You could still have the, the gentleman scientist gotcha. of the day. Or the wealthy scientist who could then fund his own lab. Like right? Darwin, actually. Like Darwin. Yeah. yeah, just there was the people yeah. who, yeah. You, you, you build a lab and you, you're wealthy enough to do that. You're wealthy enough to have this spare time and to do that. Right. So everything we knew about wave phenomena told us it needed a medium through which to travel. Right. And sound wave is the leading best example of that. If you remove the air in this room and then you speak, I will not be able to hear you at all, even though we're three feet from one another in the recording of this podcast. The sound is carried through the medium of the air. Sound can be carried through, you know, if you want to know if the train is coming, put your ear on the tracks mm -hmm. and listen for the sound communicated over miles if the track is not disconnected in any place. So, and then remove your head when the train comes. <laughs> so, so the tracks communicate the sound, air communicates the sound, which makes watching most science fiction movies frustrating because you have these spaceships moving through the vacuum of, uh, you know. Making of, noise. And, like, yeah, making noise or explosions <laughs> in space. The very first Alien movie, it was in space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah, I so love that. So <laughs> other, other science fiction movies didn't take that to heart. <laughs> because they in space no one can hear you explode either. So uh, where was I? I so so well we're sound moving oh, yeah. needs a medium to move right. through. So we knew light behaved as a wave. Right. And we knew light could reach us through the vacuum of space. Right. So there must be some medium was the assumption by everybody. Yeah. Any sensible person wouldn't think any different from that. What shall we call it? All right, let's just come up with a word. Let's call it the ether. What must the properties of the ether be to enable the properties of light that we know to propagate through it across these vast millions of miles from the sun to the earth and from the stars to the earth? Whole tracks were written to try to calculate this. Right. Of course, there is no ether. 
light is a wave of a very different kind right. that does not require a medium through which to travel. It is self-propagating. So that was a new thing that we all learned. But no one declared that the ether was real. There were no experiments showing the existence of the ether. It was asserted that it must be real. Let's try to find it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, fast forward. Not very far, by the way, because dark matter was discovered in the 1930s. What is dark matter? We have no idea. What are its properties? It has gravity. <laughs> we measure that. That's it. <laughs> 80, that's, and that's it. 85% yeah. of all the gravity of the universe is traceable to stuff about which we know nothing. It is not a placeholder okay. for ignorance. It is real. We just don't know what it is. And that's different from inventing something sure. that we assert is real, but don't know for sure if it is. The idea of it as matter, though, feels like a placeholder. You talk about yeah. in the book that there are theories that it's like, what if it's other planets in other dimensions passing by our dimension? Yeah, yeah. It's, know, it's, it's, it's unfortunately named dark matter. Yeah. Because we've only ever known matter to be a source of gravity, matter and energy to be a source of gravity. Right. So we see this extra gravity and we call it missing matter or, or dark matter. So it's natural to see how and why we ended up calling it that. But it is literally dark gravity. And if dark I call it dark gravity, yeah, yeah. that's the name of it. Yeah, yeah. And now you're not thinking, well, is dark gravity real? You're not, you, that question doesn't even come to you. Because gotcha. people say, is dark matter real? Or we just invent this? So, so people are distracted by the unfortunate label we have given to it. It is literally dark gravity. And so, no, they're not the same I'm phenomenon. I'm going to think about it that way from now on, actually. Because yeah, it's much that, stronger. It, it, yeah, it messes you Oh, up. yeah. Now, what can give us gravity? Is it something, a, a, a parallel universe? Is it a... Uh, and that loosens up your ability to think about an answer. It unbiases you right. as you approach the question. Yeah, language is powerful. It's very I'm, it's, it's I'm too much, powerful. I'm much more comfortable in the realm of language than I am in the, in the language of mathematics. Language but, is but too powerful. And it's powerful. At its worst, it constrains the freedom of your thought rather than liberating it. Indeed. In very subtle and pernicious yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, let's see what the next, what the second and I think final for us uh, video will be. This one, I believe, is physicist Lawrence Krauss, mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. friend person who explains. I didn't know the science. other guy, but I know Lawrence. I have a friend of mine who's a, a very famous writer, and I'll leave him nameless for the moment, uh, but he writes very dark novels. And uh, when I first met him, I was surprised that he was so cheerful. And I said, how can he be so cheerful? And he looked at me and he said, I'm a pessimist, but that's no reason to be gloomy. And that's become my own mantra in some sense, and it seems particularly appropriate when you think about the universe. Because the universe, first of all, does, isn't here to make us happy, it isn't here to please us, and it doesn't give a damn what happens to us. And the far future of the universe is likely to be miserable, as I talked about in my last book, and I point out my new book could even be more miserable. So in a purposeless universe that may have a miserable future, you may wonder, well, how can I go about each day? And the answer is, we make our own purpose. We make our own joy. We are here by a cosmic accident, as I've tried to show, but it's a remarkable accident that's allowed you and I to be here to talk, us to think and appreciate the beauty and splendor of the universe. So the fact that, that the universe itself may have no purpose 
doesn't affect our purpose. In fact, it's the incredible height of solipsism to assume that without us, the universe doesn't matter, and that if the universe is purposeless, we don't matter. We make our own purpose, and it seems to me life is more precious because it's temporary and accidental, and we should take advantage of that. And we, we have evolved brains, and that allows us to ask questions not just about how the universe works, but how we should behave. Now, it's a long philosophical debate about whether you can get ought from is. And maybe you can never get ought from is, and maybe reason is the slave of passion. But one thing seems clear to me, that without knowing what is, you can never get to ought. Or if you do, the ought that you get to is silly. If you don't know the consequences of your actions, which is really what science tells us, then you can't assess how to behave. And so understanding empirical phenomena is a central, plays a central role in leading a better life, it seems to me. And it should play a central role in public policy so that we as a society can make sound decisions about how to act in the common good. I embrace everything he said. I, he's thought about this deeply, and he's thought about this deeply his whole life. And he's even been a little a bit of a pit bull out there. Because <laughs> yes. when there's been sort of legal issues related to teaching evolution in the schools or not, he's there in the courts. So he, and he's in places that I've never been because he's got that energy and he's got that fire and he's got that, that will to do that. To get in the to fight. Get, to get like, in the fight. And yeah, I've, yeah. I've tried to stay out of the trenches for better or for worse. I mean, I don't, I'm not value judging one or the other. I'm just citing the difference. Right. That uh, I try to get people thinking straight in the first place so that you never have to land in the courts or <laughs> wherever else the battle is taken. So, yeah, yeah I, don't have, I don't have any... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, issues with with what he said. It's all. It's, and by the way, we are similarly trained, so it should not be odd that I'm saying, yeah, yeah, go for it. Sure. Lawrence, uh, yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, you know, I've I've wondered this about about Lawrence Krauss, and this brings this up is like, in a sense, like there's a cake and eat it too thing where like at a certain point, if you want to be the pit bull, you want to go there and you want to have those fights in the courts that. If, well, not, includes, if not mitigates, at uh, least changes maybe your identity as the like public science explainer. Like you, it, it's hard to at the same time turn everyone on to the wonders of the universe, perhaps, and get into the battle. You know, like perhaps, yeah. perhaps. I'm and not I, saying Lawrence Krauss doesn't do that, but you know, right. Uh, and uh, so that's an excellent observation. Uh, by the way, it's it it goes beyond just are you testifying in court in support of a school system or not. Right. It's how aggressive are your op-eds right. that you write. Right. And in my op-eds, I'm trying to sort of uplift everyone and have them bask in the majesty of the universe. And he writes an op-ed, it's like, this happened in the school system and this violates that, the separation of church and state, right. and they get this wrong, and they gotta keep it in the church and put it out, and he's like in there, he's, he's in there. So what I think is going on here is the many of us who are on this landscape cleared majestically and beautifully by Carl Sagan we're we are occupying pockets of this cleared landscape that best serves our talents and our energies and our efforts look at IFLS okay right I freaking love science which is started by 
a British science educator, Elise, who, who runs it, founded it, she created this website, this Facebook page, that aggregates amazing, fun, cool, scientific imagery, videos, right. lectures, and it has 30 million followers. 30 million. And some of whom must be fundamental, religious fundamentalists. Whatever, like, it's, just, yeah, yeah. it's a big number, yeah, yeah, yeah. period. And so how many Twitter followers do I have? The number is large, but it pales compared <laughs> with that. And I, what that means is, whatever I'm doing, it is clear that I'm not the only one in the, on, on the, in, in the meadow, okay? Sure. I'm not even the biggest force in the meadow. We have people going to her site to bask in science. Right. And it is a superset of whatever I'm doing and 10 other people are doing. And should she be the one testifying in court? Well, she doesn't have the academic pedigree to do that. Should she be the one giving lofty statements, Carl Sagan-esque statements? Maybe she doesn't have the literary poetic juices to enable that. Right. If she does, let's Great. get some. Let's <laughs> right. get some. But if not... <laughs> She's doing something I wouldn't even think to do. I wouldn't even thought of to have done. Aggregating and amplifying Ag that I love that. Yeah. Aggregate and amplify. <laughs> very, very nice. So the cake and eat it too, it is short-sighted to presume that that has to happen in the same person. Right. It can happen in an assembly of a dozen people on the landscape. There's Cara Santa Maria, who she herself has training in neuroscience, has become a science educator, popularizer, science communicator. And she's interviewed on documentaries, she's hosted shows. She's on the landscape too. And so I, I, got, I have a niche and I'll try to do the best I can yeah, in that yeah. niche. Yeah. And if I think I can grow what I do and if it can serve the curious audiences, I, then I'll do it. I'm happy to do that if I can and I have the time. So to say, well, Krauss does this but not that or I do that but not this, yeah. That's a pointless, it's a pointless concern. Right. And it's certainly not what I'm saying. It's, it, it was more a question. It's a, it was a, it's a concern that may actually have no foundation at all. Indeed. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, and that comes to the end of our time together. Um, oh, but before, it happened so fast. It did. <laughs> and before we go, I just want to do due diligence or whatever you would call it for my son, who's, who's 10 and wanted me to tell you that He's a huge, huge fan and thinks that you're amazing. We've been watching Cosmos. Together, okay, so. excellent. At age ten, all I can tell you is, don't Wait. don't fuck it up. <laughs> that is a particularly delicate year. It's just prepubescent, not quite middle school, but still old enough to act on their curiosity without killing themselves. Right? Because okay. when zero through three, they're curious, but half of the things they want to do will kill them. So, right. <laughs> right. right. Let me crawl to the edge of this cliff and see what's there. Ten, they know how to not kill themselves, but they're still curious. Keep that going. And, and don't fuck it up. Yeah, no, as I'll, a go, minimum, I'll go home and tell my son Neil deGrasse Tyson said, don't fuck it up. <laughs> to you, not to him. <laughs> right, right. Oh, it's up to me. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, right, Excellent. This Happy has been to, great. Uh, keep, it, keep this going. You guys are on onto a good thing here. And that wraps up our 100th episode of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. It has been an amazing journey these past two years and more and more to come. If you are 
liking the show if you know if you're sitting there at home or in your car or washing the dishes or whatever and and thinking back at the show like oh my god how did they miss this or oh i wish i could say this you know i wish i could jump in right here write me an email uh jason at bigthink.com i love to hear from people who are listening love to hear where you are what the show means to you you know who you are um i've had a lot of great conversations so far that way so please feel free to write in and we'll be back next week with another uh unexpected conversation hope you can join us 